Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. Welcome to another episode of the Secret Library Podcast. And today my guest is Lucy Bellwood, who is a freelance illustrator and cartoonist. Uh, She was born in 1989 to a pair of eccentric British expats and was raised in the Orange-Laden Valley of Ojai, which is great. I, I rarely get fellow Southern Californians on the show. Since 2007, she's been an avid lover of sailing and tall ships, working as a deckhand aboard the Lady Washington and immersing herself in the golden age of sail. During her time at sea, she's traveled from Victoria, B.C. to San Diego, participated in several tall ship festivals, taught countless school children, and dislocated one finger. She spent time aboard the XC Johnson in San Pedro, California, taking inner city youth sailing around Catalina Island. And Lucy launched into a full-time freelance career in 2012 with the help of a wildly successful Kickstarter campaign to print True Believer, a 36-page comic about having the guts to do what you love. And then in January of 2014, she became a full-time member of Periscope Studio, the largest collective of freelance comic professionals in North America. And then in 2015, she completed a second highly successful Kickstarter to print Baggy Wrinkles, A Lubber's Guide to Life at Sea. Baggy Wrinkles collects her educational, rollicking stories of maritime history and firsthand adventure into a single volume, and it came out in September. So thank you so much for being with us, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so Lucy, uh, Lucy is my first shout from the audience guest because I saw her speak at XOXO. And I was sitting with my husband and I said, we got to have her on the show. And he's like, because totally. <laughs> he, he does all the sound editing, bless him. So I, I wrote to Lucy and here she is. So thank you so much for coming into this blind. Absolutely. This is the magic of the internet. Or I mean, you know, meeting people on the internet who you've kind of met in person. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I have so many things I want to talk about with you, but one of them is the beauty of having a dream, like loving tall ships all your life, and then converting that into a book. That, I think, is kind of magical, particularly doing it with pictures. So so how did you first realize you loved tall ships? It wasn't a lifelong obsession, I would say. It's interesting that it has become, there was a conversation about this on Twitter the other day that I really wanted to dig into more than the medium would allow about how our 
professional selves, how our avatars of ourselves online impact our personal development, how much influence your persona as an author, especially of autobio material, has on your personality and your actual interests in life. And it becomes a chicken and egg question because I think when I was a no, I don't know. When I, when I was in middle school, probably, my best friend and I were super into pirates. It was the sort of trendy thing. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean was like imminently coming out. We were obsessed with Cutthroat Island, which is, for my money, the best pirate film ever made. And we would spend a lot of time on the beach. You know, growing up in California, we were pretty close to the coast. And it was the sea was a big part of my childhood. But ships and sailing, not really so much. On the West Coast, tall ships are not as much of a thing as they are in New England or up on the eastern seaboard. So, it took a long time for those interests to kind of gel into something. And it's it's funny when people say, oh, it's great that you have pursued this dream relentlessly from the start. And I laugh because it doesn't seem like that to me at all. It seems like a very organic evolution. And it feels very logical when I look back on it and think, oh, of course, that's what happened. Of course, I loved ships and then became a cartoonist and, you know, did this thing. And like my mom was a cartoonist for a little bit before I was born. And so that makes sense. And it all fits together. And in reality... I haven't, I was never one of those kids who knew from jump, I want to be a cartoonist. And I have friends like that who have known since they were tiny and that's just what they've done. And they have ended up in doing it for a career and uh, they are just as successful. You know, it's like there's, there's no real requirement for starting out in that way. But it was definitely a a preteen sort of early teenage obsession for me. And that blossomed into total adoration and love the first time I actually got to set foot on the Lady Washington when I was a senior in high school. Is that right? Or maybe I was a junior going into my senior year. That's probably right. It was spring. I found the first photo. Actually, the photo that I showed of the Lady Washington in the talk was from the very first time I ever saw her. And my family and I went out for a day sail for three hours and tootled around the Ventura Harbor. And just watching the crew work in such perfect synchronicity and there's all this shouting, you know, there's this call and response command chain going on and it was all the best parts of like improv theater and physical prowess and teamwork and history and adventure rolled into this perfect package and so I collared one of the crew members at the end of the sale and just said, how do I do this? Take me with you. I just want to go right now. And they said, we have a volunteer program. You can come aboard and you know, you pay 500 bucks, you go for two weeks, they feed you and clothe you and train you. And at the end of that time, you're a qualified volunteer and you can come back anytime and live aboard for free. And in exchange, you help maintain and sail the vessel. And it's a pretty good deal when you're a a young person who is obsessed with the sea and dying to live that experience in a more real way. It's amazing that that's available. I mean, there are very few, you know, I'm thinking of other interests. It's not like you can, if you're like a football fan, you can't be like, we'll take you and teach you to play and then you can come and hang out with the team. But there's like, I mean, there are summer camps, you know, there's football summer camps or there's like, I think the thing that blew my mind was that this was even an option because I think there are so many people who don't know that tall ships still exist, which is mind boggling to me now because the world of tall ships is massive and they're all over the globe and they're in all different shapes and sizes. They do all sorts of different things. I have these friends right now who are working on kickstarting the initial build costs for a cargo carrying carbon negative ship, tall ship in Costa Rica that will carry cargo from country to country uh, without negatively impacting the environment, unlike an enormous container ship. And The fact that there's, I just did a comic about this, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, but there's this resurgence of sail-powered vessels being used for carrying cargo 
And they're used for educational purposes and for, you know, museums and also for reenactments of famous battles. And there's tall ship festivals all the time. Like, it's a whole thing. And there are some people who just don't know that that still exists. It's it's like being obsessed with the Renaissance and then finding out that Renaissance fairs are actually a thing. And you could go and, like, dress up in costume and, you know, run around in the woods with a big stick. It's amazing. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast. I'm from Baltimore. So Okay. So we had the constellation right. in the harbor. Although she doesn't sail, right? She's a no, fixed dock. No, she does not. She's, yeah. she's real old. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sister actually got married. We had the reception on the constellation. which was Oh, pretty, gosh, how cool. It was pretty cool. But the thing is, you know, they slope upwards at the ends. Mm-hmm. So the dance floor was kind of on a slope. Wonky. Which... Which made for some interesting, uh, interesting, it was already a bunch of not great dancers dancing at this thing. I mean, let's face it, I was one of them, but, but a slope deck really, really added to that. Yeah. So I'm curious about, so you get on the Lady Washington, you have this experience, you go and learn how to be on a ship, basically. Mm -hmm. And then at what point were you cartooning already in high school or when did that start and how did they come together? I was drawing already in high school uh, and then I got pretty firmly into my freshman year. I was really interested in pursuing either a traditional animation or comics major, probably at the Savannah College of Art and Design because they had one of the earlier sequential art programs. They were called, you know, every college has a different name for the comics major to make it sound not like comics because that's a bad word so everybody wants to be like it's sequential art it's narrative media it's uh you know graphic storytelling and you're like can you just call it comics comics is okay it's fine it's like people get really anxious they do and I think people get anxious when they talk to me they they want to call me a graphic novelist and I understand that that has become a marketing shorthand for I make long-form books you know, story like longer narrative stories told through comics, but bound in the way you would expect a book to be bound, not floppy comics, not superhero comics, blah, 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 blah. And it just makes me laugh, though, because people will pick up like an eight page mini comic and say, well, your graphic novel, I'm like, this is not a graphic novel. In any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I understand you're doing that because you're worried I'll be offended. But honestly, I draw comics. I'm a cartoonist. It's totally fine. <laughs> There is a strong thing around that, just a sidebar. I mean, one of the people I was very lucky to get to interview like 10 years ago at Book Soup when I was doing podcasting there was Alison Bechdel. Mm, And I got to talk to her about her book, Fun Home. And she said, honestly, like, I wish they'd just shelve it in memoir. It's a memoir. Yeah. It happens to be drawn. Right. And it is often classified now as graphic memoir. Which sounds naughty. Yeah, I know. All, all of it is kind of a mess. And people, I think, you know, bookstores and libraries, I'm sure you encountered this at Book Soup, like they're still catching up with trying to figure out how to house all of this stuff. Because within comics, within graphic novels, there are whole universes. There are adult titles. There are, you know, kids' comics. And then there are like young picture books that are more like comics than actual picture books, you know, or the, where's that line? And then you've got middle reader comics and grown up. It's just... And then there's manga, right? There's just like all of these different things. And I know every bookstore and library shelves differently. And in terms of figuring out, like putting out baggy wrinkles and trying to figure out what um, codes to put into it so people would know where to shelve it was like, well, I can try my best, but honestly, everyone's going to call the own, they're going to call their own shots and decide where they want to put it. Yeah. They're just, it's just a free for all. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this is a this is a sidebar, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, no, I was the asking art about art to sailing thing. It's yeah, totally my fault. How um, how you when you started doing comics in school, and then mm-hmm. how did the tall ships come together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I was drawing in col- uh, in high school. Uh, I got really into theater though, and that was kind of my whole life. 
through most of high school. It was what I had intended to pursue going into college. I wrote a play my senior year that ended up being produced in Ojai by a local theater company that summer. Uh, and then I took off and traveled for eight months and like went to the Edinburgh Festival and had saved and scraped all this money together because I really wanted to take a gap year and just go explore for a while. And the tail end of that, it was eight months of backpacking and then three months of sailing on the Lady Washington. So when I came to college the following year, the following fall, I was really immersed in that culture. It had it had left a really indelible mark on me because I'd gone back for a couple two-week stints the previous summer and fall, which were also really impactful. But just being able to stay for three months and really exist in the rhythm of that life was super formative. So I would creep away and go and do these little, you know, couple days here, weekend here, week there on tall ships when I was in college. But it wasn't really... I mean, I started getting plugged into Portland's comic scene because I was reading a lot of web comics in, and that had started in, you know, middle school, high school when when web comics were kind of a new thing. It's not like deep web comic history, but I was part of the sort of secondary early wave of people getting into web comics. And there wasn't a lot of choice. There's a great interview with Kate Beaton where she talks about the fact that she chalks a lot of her early success up to the fact that there were just not a lot of people making comics at the time. And that is not to downplay the fact that she is exceptionally funny and very skilled. God, she's so funny. She's so I love funny. her. But And I remember reading those early comics that were drawn in MS Paint and they were utterly ridiculous and they still hold up even if her technical drawing skill has increased. You know, her sense of humor was there. But it made me laugh because I do feel like it's kind of true when I look at the staggering array of web comics coming out now from kids who are like 15, 16 who have had drawing tablets their whole lives and so they've really got this proficiency with it and like they can just go for it. And the the overall quality as the medium has evolved has just gone up so much. And at the time when Kay was getting started making comics, I remember like there were maybe 10 web comics <laughs> to read. And now it's like you can't you can't keep up with them. Yeah, there's like her and Akewood and... Right, and then there were like, the, there was the video game crowds, there's Penny Arcade and PvP, and then like Erica Moen and Danielle Corsetto and there, there were a bunch of folks doing it, but the it was a sort of scrappy community, and I feel like that also has something to do with the fact that the technical tools have progressed as well. So now it's a lot easier for kids to get access to drawing tablets at an earlier age, and a lot of it has to do with just gaining proficiency with that and having access to you know Manga Studio or Clip Studio Paint, I think they call it now, this drawing software or Photoshop or whatever. And it's just about what you grow up with. I, I've been trying to articulate this more and more because I think when people ask, oh, when did you start drawing comics? It's easy for me to say, like, I started drawing comics in 2010 when I went to a workshop at the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont. And that's true. And then people say, did you go to school for this? And I'm like, yeah, I got a degree in art. But like, that really doesn't have very much to do with why I do this or what enabled me to do this or encouraged me to do this. All of that comes from my family and the environment that I grew up in and the fact that my parents were willing to make the tools to be excited about and comfortable around drawing available to me from a really early age. And they're both freelance writers. And so they were around all the time. They were working on stuff. I got to watch them hash through script issues in our living room because, you know, we didn't have a, an extra office that they could go to. So I was just a part of that conversation from a really early age. And that that seems like the thing that makes a difference, you know, at um, at EXO, when, when Andy Bayo was thanking his family for being there at the closing address, I was just tearing up all over the place because, you know, his son, Elliot, has been to every festival. And that 
is so huge. Like it, I mean, for, for all of the anxiety about like, oh, is homeschooling the right choice? Is regular school the right choice? Exposing your child to the notion that there is so much more out there in the world and normalizing for them the idea that you can try and fail and explore and, you know, be in these different environments. Like the, the confidence and ingenuity that I see in Elliot is really staggering. And I can't imagine that that doesn't have something to do with the fact that he has been exposed to these communities and that's been normalized for him. And that's so huge. I just meet so many people who, I guess there's sort of two camps. There's people who came from incredibly supportive families with parents who were like, we're with you, whatever you do, you know, we're, we're behind you a hundred percent of the way. And, uh, if you want to explore this thing, great. We'll, we'll nurture that without pressuring you. And if you change your mind, awesome. That's great too which is kind of where I came from. And then there's people who had parents or teachers, whoever, who were like, you're never going to make it. You're no good. This is a, this is a terrible idea and you're going to fail. And so their approach is like, oh, oh yeah. Okay, fine. I'll show you. And I think both, both methodologies work equally well. <laughs> and that's not to say there aren't people in the middle, but uh, the, those seem to be, I, the people who I meet who are super driven and successful and like really making it, I feel like they tend to fall into one of those two camps. And there's a lot to be said for coming from an environment that really fosters that sense of curiosity. So anyway, the the short answer that I give kids if they ask, did you go to school for this, is like, yes, I did. I went to a liberal arts college, though. I didn't go to art school. I don't think art school is necessary to make a living in comics. Nobody's ever asked for my degree, not once. That seems to be true a lot in creative yeah, fields. Like living absolutely. in L.A. where there's so much film. My brother's a film editor, and, and he just – nobody said like, well – where did your film? Do you have a degree from the Harvard School of Film, film Editing? Like, I mean, yes, he did study it, right. but but it's like it's never been part of any interview or anything. That yeah, anyone I know who's worked in film or entertainment or any other art degree, it's not like yeah. well, it's like well, here's the work. Do you like the work? Yeah, with comics, it's like nobody ever wants to see my degree. They just want to see my portfolio, and if they like what's in the portfolio then they hire me. <laughs> and that's not to say that the skills I got from a liberal arts education are not incredibly relevant all the time because being able to write critically or think critically about issues related to the work uh, and to and to talk about it articulately, that's a really huge boon. And it's something that I notice cropping up very frequently when I do speaking events, like, like speaking at EXO. I was really relieved that a lot of people came up and said, wow, that was so coherent because in my brain, I mean, I can, I'm holding the stack of post-it notes that that talk came out of and it is messy. It is not coherent in any way, shape or form. And I had so many thoughts that I wanted to distill down. And I realized that those skills, being able to take all those disparate elements and weave them together into a narrative and then articulate that narrative, you know, that's all going to a small liberal arts conference driven, conversationally motivated program like that stuff does come in handy and even if the draftsmanship skills that I gained at Reed were minimal the the community that I got plugged into like the the writing skills that I developed all of that stuff is is super relevant so anyway most educational experiences I feel like are relevant to cultivating a practice but the majority of my comics work actually happened outside of college so I was either plugging into Portland's comic scene or I started a drawing night for younger creators to come to my house every Thursday and I just had an open door policy for two years. And wherever I lived on Thursday nights, people would just come over and bring whatever they were working on. And that was huge. I mean, that, that group is still running. I actually passed it off to my friend Becky Hawkins, who now hosts it at her place. It was great because that was kind of the foot in the door for a lot of creators. And it's really amazing to see them, you know, five years later 
making it in Portland's comic scene or like launching Patreons of their own or working on new projects together or collaborating. Like that was sort of a, a group of people who came together at the right time and formed something supportive. And that's something that I always try and encourage younger creators to do is if you are in a situation where you feel like your creative needs aren't being met, which mine weren't really at Reed. I mean, the art department was very small. It was very fine arts focused. They didn't really know what to do with me. And I thought, you know, I really, I just want like some people to hang out and talk about comics with. And so I went and started that thing and and it turned out other people wanted that too. So I think you can always, whether it's online or in person, you can pull together some kind of group. And that was huge for me getting started because those were the people who really supported me. So I was drawing comics on top of my course load. I was drawing them as part of this certificate program that I did. There's a great place here called the Independent Publishing Resource Center. And they are a DIY zine, letterpress, printmaking studio, community resource library. And they offer this scrappy certificate program that's kind of like a master's, but, you know, not really where you meet for evening classes once or twice a week. And uh, they teach you about self-publishing methods and print production techniques and all that kind of stuff. And again, that was not like art boot camp. It was just an environment where I was being encouraged to continue pursuing my craft. And it was a structure of accountability that allowed me to keep moving forward, even when things got really busy. And I felt like that for me was the most important thing to have. So how did that inform? Well, I think there's a lot in here that I'm excited about. I mean, I think being able to talk about work and make work are two different Mm -hmm. skills. And then being able to figure out the resources of putting it out there. And it seems like that was kind of the perfect storm to lead to kickstarting. And yeah. So how did how did that process go? The department didn't have enough money to publish my thesis comic. <laughs> I mean, or they didn't have an interest in, you know, publishing something that I would sell commercially, which is perfectly right. reasonable. But Kickstarter was was newer back then. This was 2012. And it had been around for a couple of years, but you know, it was still like I think that was when Amanda Palmer had launched her project. And so there were there were people like Double Fine had had their first one. So people were starting to make a million dollars on Kickstarter and everyone was like, whoa, what's this crazy money machine? And I thought, you know, yeah, why not? I'll put out a I'll put out a thing and see what happens. And I was trying to raise twelve hundred dollars to print a hundred copies of this comic I'd drawn as part of my thesis. And that comic and the thesis process around it, I think, really ties into that notion of making the work and talking about the work. Because Reed requires you to do a senior thesis that's kind of like a master's project. And in the art department, uh, because there's a sort of inferiority complex, and so they make everybody work twice as hard to prove to the academic departments that they are legit, you have to complete a year-long creative project, but then also write an analytic document about that project or relevant things. So it was like, draw the 36-page comic and then also churn out this 100-page academic paper about you know, issues related to creativity in America and like cultural notions around failure and self-publishing and comics. And I I got into a lot of stuff. It's not as bad as I remember it. The times I've picked it up and started reading it, it's actually been, there's stuff in there I would like to unpack and maybe rewrite for a a blog post series or something. But That sounds like a great idea. It was really valuable. And even though at the time what ended up happening, and I wrote about this in the thesis, was that trying to work on the analytic elements and the creative elements simultaneously was a tire fire. It was a terrible idea. And focusing my attention on just doing the creative work without any kind of inner critic coming out to play or saying, you know, 
how are you going to cite your sources for this thing or where where are the footnotes going to go on this page? It's like, no, 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 no. You just have to make the work right now. And then later you can analyze it and write about it. So in the spring, I decided to do a Kickstarter. And this was like a couple months before graduation, I guess. The campaign was three weeks long and I didn't have $1,200 to my name. I went through college entirely on financial aid. My family were not in a financial position to to help pay for it. So our expected FAFSA contribution was like six bucks. It was perfect. <laughs> um, and it's it's funny. I think I mentioned this in the XO talk that I, I bring this up a lot when I talk to students because it's it really doesn't differentiate me from somebody who had the money to put themselves through college or whose you know, family or trust fund or whatever could pay a private college tuition bill. And either way, a rich kid, you know, a poor kid, we come out the same without debt. And a lot of the time it's the students from like middling income families who really get shafted because they end up having to pay for it even if they can't actually afford it. So they have to take out loans and then they come out with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And like that's that's the biggest deterrent to being able it's to It's a mess. Them. It's a total mess. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's broken and terrible. But also I, I feel like it's worth talking about because it means that artists coming out of college who are worried, oh, well, I have to get a day job to keep up with this extra $700 I have to pay out every month for the rest of my life. But that means I'm not a real artist. Like, bullshit. Of course, you're a real artist, you know? Yeah. If you make work, you're a real artist. Exactly. Like people do the same things to themselves about being a writer. Like, oh, you know, I'm not a real writer, you know? And I I don't know why we do that trick on ourselves. Yeah. If you're writing something, you're a writer. Right. Exactly. And it's, you know, the more people I meet in the world, the more successful cartoonists, authors, creators of every stripe, there are so many of them with day jobs, <laughs> a majority even. And that's, that's okay. Yeah. And then they, uh, it's not okay in that, you know, the student debt crisis is real, but like, it's okay in that if you, if you need to take a day job, that shouldn't preclude you from being able to be in the creator club. Cause why, I don't know, why bother excluding people from that club? It does nobody any good whatsoever. And it's only it only enriches us to have more people, more voices. So I'm I'm a big proponent of that. Anyway, I, I bring this up because I didn't have twelve hundred dollars to print this comic and couldn't really imagine scraping together. It seemed like a lot of money. I was like, there's no way I'm ever gonna okay, well, I'll put up this Kickstarter campaign and I'll give it three weeks and maybe I'll raise twelve hundred dollars to print my comic. Uh, and I was sitting in a an art history lecture the morning that it launched. It went up at eight AM on a Monday and my phone was just blowing up. I was getting all of these emails like every two seconds after the campaign launched of all these people pledging and pledging and pledging and pledging. And finally, I had to put it on silent because I was like, this is very distracting and I'm trying to be in class. And oh, God, oh, God. And the campaign funded in I don't know, three hours, maybe tops. Wow. And then just kept going and people kept pledging money to it. And it closed 8 a.m. the morning of my graduation. So my parents were in Portland with me and we all sat around the laptop and counted down the last few seconds while the little ticker went down. And it closed at $11,700 or something like that. And it was considerably wow. higher than I had anticipated. That's like 10 times. That's amazing. Yeah, I was 700% funded. So I, I was able to walk at graduation being like, wow, I'm going to publish my thesis comic. Like I just raised all this money. And you can imagine what a heady experience that was of timing, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody because running a Kickstarter campaign your last three weeks of undergrad is an insane thing to do. It's an, like running a Kickstarter period is an insane thing to do at any point in time. But also trying to graduate from a very rigorous academic college is not a good double feature. 
However, <laughs> that being said, graduating with that boost of confidence and that sort of communal vote of like from, you know, friends, from people in my community, but also from strangers, from people on the internet who did not know me and just thought that the comic or the video was compelling enough a pitch to say, yeah, I want to throw our support behind you. Like that would be, that would be a good thing to do. So how did you make the video? Like how did you put the whole thing together? And is it still I, available? Can we yeah, show yeah. it to the, can we link to it in the show notes? You so totally can. can. It's see. still up on Kickstarter. I don't know okay, how long Kickstarter maintains a record of past projects, but I hope it stays up there a long time because um, I don't think it's on my hard drive anymore. But I, again, the, all, all of these instances, it's like this was, you know, a case of right place, right time, or this was, I was extremely fortunate. And uh, I was extremely fortunate my senior year to be dating a cinematographer uh, who was another young guy who was super into film and he uh, had access to camera equipment and went kind of overboard. We we got a little ridiculous <laughs> with the video. We like rented all this equipment and got, you know, like pan rails and like the super fancy camera and put a ton of time and effort into it. And obviously everybody's not going to be able to do that. I actually used him again for my second Kickstarter video, but, um, you know, paid him this time because we were no longer dating. And that's how the barter economy works. So at the time he was like, let me do this for you. It'll be great. And we didn't really realize walking into it, how many sleepless nights we were going to spend in the media lab, like editing this thing together. And the college had video editing equipment. So we did that. We slept in the media lab wrapped in a green screen blanket and then would like wake up throughout the night while the renders finished coming through and tweak things and fix stuff and fret about file sizes and why this thing was pixelated and what was going on here. And eventually we put this thing together and I'm so proud of it. I feel like the comic has relatively little to do with the success of the campaign and it's a lot of it is about the video because so many people who went, you know, when they pledged, when they didn't know who I was, referenced that and said, you know, I had no idea what this was, but this video is like legit. <laughs> you you obviously create a desire in people to invest in whatever is going on here, regardless of what it is. And that's why I always encourage people to try to present the most professional front they can putting together a video. It doesn't mean you have to have the best quality camera or, you know, the nicest microphone, but not recording on your laptop in a closet with a sock over the you know, microphone bit of your laptop is like kind of an obvious thing that people don't always adhere to. And I think there's an extension there where if people see that you're taking your self-presentation seriously or seriously enough to be professional about it, it doesn't mean that you have to be serious all the time. I am not very serious as a person. But if you're presenting yourself professionally, then the logical follow through is this person is going to adhere to their campaign promise professionally as well and they will get this thing made and sent out and I did that over the course of the next year albeit slowly because it turns out I was woefully underprepared to fulfill you know a 300 person kickstarter and that was a long process I did not know about postage printers I didn't know oh, about yeah. label printers I hand addressed all of the envelopes with my family but it was fun and it was a learning experience and it put me on a lot of people's radars and I think was a really valuable launching pad for everything else that I ended up doing. It wasn't so stressful that you didn't do it again. Correct. Although it did take me three years to get over the PTSD and then launch <sighs> it. Uh, and now it's been a year and we're getting our last, I just sent out a Kickstarter update being like, so 53 of you still haven't sent me your surveys. Please fill out your mailing address so I can send you your books because that's kind of the point of this whole thing. 
Uh, so there's there's been a bit of that recently, but it's it's creeping towards completion. I think there and that family from the first Kickstarter four years ago, you know, I, I still am in touch with them. I still message them from time to time and say like, hey, backers, I actually owe them an update uh, about whatever's going on right now because the book is out now and I've got a new project coming out that I'm excited about that I wanted to share. So there folks from that campaign have messaged me and specifically said like please write to us when you have new things cuz we want to stay in tune with whatever's going on with you so that's it's so really sweet. nice yeah it's nice that that's an enduring community even after a project funds you can say like hey you can you can still stick around for this that's been an ongoing theme that people have talked about on the show is that I'm sure this was always the case, but I think we talk about this even more in the age of technology and being able to connect, just how important it is to have a community around yourself as a creative book producing person. Absolutely. Yeah. Not just in terms of your community of fans, but in terms of your community of creators. I think this is a, a really huge thing and it's true, possibly even more true if you're working independently than if you're working with a publisher. Although I think that's not to say that folks who have publishers are less in need of community from fellow creators or of community with fans. But it's, there's this notion of like, if you're, if you're freelancing or, you know, if you're self-publishing, you're going it alone. And it's like, that's so far from the truth. Everything that I do as a freelancer relies on community so much more because I'm not relying on like six people who work at a publishing house I'm relying on 1,300 people all over the world who are willing to chip in 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 10 bucks, one buck, you know, 100 bucks to help make this book a reality. And that feels different to me somehow and, and more appealing in some ways because that net allows me a direct connection to that audience and that community informs my work. They, they inform my motivation and it's not to say that I am slavishly devoted to only pleasing them because obviously the work loses some of its fidelity if it's coming from a place of pandering as opposed to a place of genuine enthusiasm. But that being said, you know, my audience going back to the notion of, was I always this into boats? Like there are people who mail me fascinating old books that they've found about tall ships and maritime history, which I love. It's the sweetest and most wonderful thing. And I probably wouldn't be reading those books if those people weren't sending them to me. And because they're sending them to me, I'm reading them. And because I'm reading them, I'm more knowledgeable about that history. And, you know, it kind of like it snowballs into creating a persona for me that is not actually what I might have turned into without the career, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how having a public persona can shift you know, how you're feeling because, and, and how you're working as a creative. We had uh, Mary Laura Philpot on who did a book called Penguins with People Problems, which came uh-huh. out of a Tumblr based on drawing these cartoons of random penguins after Penguin uh, Random House merged. And mm-hmm. so, and she was kind of joking about this and drawing, but she was doing this as kind of a jokey blog until Penguin Random House came and said, hey, we want to do a book about this. We think it's really funny. <laughs> And then she said it was difficult to maintain a little bit at first, like, oh, my God, my publisher's looking at these drawings now that I'm doing on Tumblr and other people are looking and now I'm doing it. So how has it been for you to do this work knowing that you have this whole community and you have, you know, Patreon and and people watching and families like does that it sounds like in some ways that feeds the situation because they're sending inspiring material. But are there any ways in which it makes you self-conscious or changes the way that you work? Oh, boy. 
That's a really interesting question. I've been talking about this a lot with people in terms of Patreon recently because creators all set up their pages differently. I was really explicit when I launched my Patreon page that I was doing it as a on a monthly basis. Uh, my work comes out at really irregular inter- intervals. Like sometimes I am traveling for many months this year. I am currently in the first five-week stretch in Portland that I have had since last November, I want to say. I have not stayed put at all, ever, really. Uh, This year has been so much travel and so much exploration. And some of that has been travel for uh, creative purposes. Like I've gone on some amazing trips that I'm turning into comics and that's in the works right now. But some of it was book tour, some of it was promotion. A lot of it's been conventions and, you know, speaking gigs and teaching gigs and stuff like that. And it's left very little time for producing work. And I've talked to creators who, when I say, why don't you set up your Patreon monthly as opposed to per creation, they say, oh, I couldn't do that because what would happen if a month went by and I didn't put out something new? My fans would get angry. And it's like, well, this is I, – I was talking to um, Frank Chimera about this at EXO that a lot of it comes down to expectation. And – the parameters you establish at the outset. And I was super clear when I was setting up my goals that, you know, the goals on my page are like, this is how much it's going to cost to pay my food for the month, like to to pay for my groceries. This is how much it's going to cost to cover my health insurance. This is how much it will cost to pay my rent. And those goals are set up explicitly in that way to be as transparent as possible about the fact that I am aiming to use Patreon as a sort of guaranteed universal basic income. Like (laughs) that's what I would love to have for creators is, you know, people lay out their expenses and knowing that Patreon, I mean, now it's, it's getting to the point where I can consistently to depend on it to pay my rent and to cover my utilities and to make sure that I have food. And that's real big (laughs) because it means that, you know, a lot of the opportunities that I get, the travel opportunities that sound so glamorous by and large, they involve, companies contacting me, not companies, organizations, nonprofits contacting me and saying, we can maybe fly you out here. Like we'll probably be able to pay for half of your ticket. There's no salary, but you get to keep whatever work you make while you're here. And it would be a mutually beneficial situation where you would be helping to promote our organization and also gaining experience that you can use in your own work for your fans. And I will take those opportunities, you know, to every single time, because honestly, the companies who could pay me a salary to go a lot of the time aren't compelling to me or like it would end up being a corporate gig that's not as interesting. But being able to say yes to working with nonprofits, educational outfits, museums, you know, uh, schools, libraries, because I have this guaranteed security from Patreon is huge. And I love that. I love it so much. It brings me to tears every month when I hit deposit on that money that comes in from all of those people who are willing to help me make this possible. Oh, gosh, I have so many feelings about it. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Patreon and monthly stuff versus creation stuff. Like that's – I feel like I have done myself a favor by saying explicitly there's not going to be a new thing every single month. And even in places where I have said that there is, most people on Patreon are really just there to help you make it. They're not in it for the swag. I think in Kickstarter a lot of the time you'll get backers who are like, well, I just came here because I wanted to buy this book and now I don't have my book. And Patreon is so much more about I'm here because I want to see you, the creator, succeed and survive and, you know, flourish in, in whatever way you see fit. And money helps that happen. And I trust that at some point down the line, you're going to produce a really interesting, fascinating thing for us to look at. And that'll be great when it happens. But like, don't sweat it. 
I still sweat it a lot of the time. I still worry about, oh, I haven't, you know, sent them anything. Like I, I normally do a weekly Patreon update for um, all of my supporters and I haven't gotten to that the last couple of weeks because I've been on planes or at festivals or, you know, doing stuff on Fridays. And then after the show, I'm either sick or too exhausted to contemplate writing something. And now I'm in this issue where it's like so much has happened since I wrote to my patrons last. And I have a very direct, emotionally vulnerable relationship with them where I'm willing to talk about pretty much everything that goes on. But so much has been going on that I don't even know. I've started so many posts. And then by the time I actually have time to sit down to write them, it's like, well, but then there's this other thing going on now. And I want to go focus on that. So it's it can be hard to know kind of like catching up with a dear old friend where to start oh, yeah. because there's so much that you want to talk about and you don't want to send them a letter that's like 15 pages long. So we'll, uh, we'll kind of, we'll cross that bridge. Maybe it'll be a multi-part. Week. It could be yeah. A I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of, there'll be a lot of posts over the next couple of weeks, but I think the, the real joy of Patreon for me is that I am learning to trust that it is not an obligation driven mechanism. It doesn't require that I produce on a schedule every single week, the people who are there are invested in the process. And that's a huge part of building a community, not just a fan base. I think that's a, a strong distinction because I think a lot of the time fans can become entitled or they can think that you are simply a content machine put there for their enjoyment. And the beautiful thing about Patreon is that it fosters an environment, like actively encourages a dialogue that opens the opens the curtain on that process and people are differing degrees of vulnerable vulnerable about that and that is totally fine because you know for some folks it makes more sense and for others it doesn't I'm a very touchy-feely person I like having people involved in my process and being able to share that in a space that is made somewhat safer by the fact that it seems unlikely someone would pay money for the privilege of hurling online abuse at me so given that the people who are reading my patreon posts are probably on my side, it just gives a little bit of a buffer to be like, it's probably safe for me to say the stuff that might be misinterpreted by a wider audience if I said it online. And it's a safe space for me to talk about what's difficult instead of trying to be positive and upbeat all the time. Because it's never like that, right? And community, I think fans expect you to be a character. Community expects you to be a person. And a community will hold you in a way that a fan base might not. I mean, I think that's a great distinction because there is so much, there are amazing conversations that happen online and that it, it is amazing how much different outlets have such different personalities. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, knowing which outlet you're talking to and which one you're connecting with and that there's a way to use all of them. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's just interesting because you look at ways in which it becomes very inspiring yeah. And also, I see people who get overwhelmed. So it's it's like, yes. do I have to do all of this? I'm just trying to write my book or I'm just trying to make my thing. And yeah, and I think it is. It's just a process of coming to terms with that. But I think it is a beautiful thing that you said that having a community that's really on your side, people may not realize that that's what's available as well. It's not just yeah. I have to broadcast stuff and I have to entertain and tap dance. And yeah, you like me, so you'll like my book versus... People might, you know, really just want to hear how it is to work on mm -hmm. a book. And I mean, it's also those mechanisms that we're plugging into are engineered to be addictive. And that is something that you have to keep in mind. And I recognize that 
I'm a big proponent of the internet and community and social media and Patreon and Twitter and all this other stuff. But then when it really comes down to it, the the slide that people tweeted the most from my talk at, at EXO was the post-it notes that I have up on my desk that I'm looking at right now that say the internet will not give you what you want. Because when I get stuck in that cycle of just refreshing social media and not actually making anything, it's hard because when we make things, we share them. And then when we share them, we get little dings of approval from the internet saying, you made a thing. Good job. People like the thing. They like you. You're popular. Good job. And that's great. But it's also addictive. And then you get stuck in this cycle of like not producing, but still expecting the reward. And then when you don't get the reward, you get listless and depressed and like just stuck to your screen all the time. So there's a podcast I really love called the Creative Pep Talk Podcast with Andy J. Miller, who's a designer. And he runs a really lovely, positive, smart show where he talks personally or interviews people about the aspects of building a creative business, like being a, a freelance um, or day job employed, but like a, a professional creative business person rather than having this traditional divide between like fine art and business and never the twain shall meet. And it's a bad word to talk about, you know, your content or your strategy or your brand or like any of that stuff. And I appreciate that he is talking about the business of commercial art because that's honestly what I do. And it's what so many of us do. And it can be rough to feel like you're stuck in this netherworld between, well, you're not, you know, whatever, whatever enough pretentious enough to be a fine artist and you're not, uh, like money driven enough to be a straight business person or I don't know what it is. It's a false dichotomy though. It's, it's just wrong. Like there, there's no shame in attempting to make a living from your work. And he addresses that really nicely. So he has this concept that he talks about, which I'm sure he's taken from somewhere else about creative seasons. And he has a, a great episode that goes into detail on this about the idea that it's ludicrous to expect a farmer to be harvesting in the planting season. That's not, how it works. If you're, if you're growing one crop and it's supposed to, you know, go year round, obviously you could have a garden that's designed in a sort of permaculture attitude. If we're going to take this metaphor really far and obviously like always have something that you're harvesting and always have something you're investing in. But I love that because I spend a lot of time beating up on myself being like, well, you haven't been working on this graphic novel this year. And everyone around me with two cents of, you know, sense, um, <laughs> their two cents of sense says, yeah, but you've been traveling. I mean, you're promoting your book, you're dealing with printers, you're handling the logistics of shipping out 1300 copies all over the globe. Like that is also your job, not just producing the book. So don't waste time beating yourself up for not doing this thing that isn't what you're doing right now. It's okay to say the current focus of the career is promotion or the current focus is getting the word out, going to conventions, meeting people. And that's not to say that I won't produce anything this year. I have made some stuff. But the primary drum in in the, the march has been outward facing. And it has been social media and promotion and sharing and traveling and, you know, experiences. And next year, I'm really hungry for more of that introspective, disconnected, isolated, like, and all of those words sound negative when I'm saying them, but I really don't mean them to <laughs> like just no, a I bit think of they stability. sound lovely. Yeah. Right? A, bunch, a, of, a bunch of people who want to deal with books love those words. So don't yes. worry. It's true. I was on a, a plane. I tweeted something about, you know, oh, I'm on this plane and there's no seatback entertainment and there's no Wi-Fi. And um, I didn't really bring anything on my on my phone to, you know, look at or play with. And there was a friend of mine who I have a pen pal correspondence with who was like, 
and you're on that plane for six hours, that sounds like such bliss. Nobody can get to you. You know, you're completely like she's a mother, too. So it's just, just like the notion of that much uninterrupted time is a luxury. And oh, I have to remind myself of that, that being able to take the space. I panic a lot about having empty days that I have to decide how I structure them and fill them, you know, and I all I could always be working because my work is ever present in a lot of ways. And I have to remember that that's not just a curse. It's also a blessing to have that freedom and to be able to choose to just take a day and disconnect and go and think and process. But building time for inaction into my schedule is very difficult, especially as a very like driven, you know, aggressive person in terms of wanting to succeed at this, not necessarily fiscally, just in terms of, I love being productive. I love crossing things off the list. And if you're wearing all of those hats at once, creator, you know, business analyst, promotions expert, like social media trumpeter, those are all full-time jobs in and of themselves. And I completely understand how authors can get freaked out by the notion of suddenly publishers are asking them, well, how many Twitter followers do you have? And like, do you have a social media presence that will support the release of this book? And what they've focused on developing is the thing that I feel like I've spent less time developing, which is the discipline and the stamina and the trust to just exist in a space of creation and fester in that for as long as it takes to make something lovely and then share it with the world. And I think if I had to guess, I would say over the last six years, my focus has been more on I'm going to learn how to build a community and share my process and really plug into that wider world and reap the opportunities that come as a result of that, which is great. Neither one of those is you know wrong or bad. It's just, They're just different. And I spend a lot of time feeling self-conscious because I worry that I am less valid of a creator because I have not done the hermitage and I haven't withdrawn from the world to go and work on my magnum opus and then emerged and been like, yes, gaze upon my works, ye mighty. And that's, that's false. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't actually ring true when you sit down and start to examine it. Exactly. I mean, it, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit because I hear people say something like I'm less significant because I haven't built a whole community or I'm less significant <laughs> because I haven't been inside the hermitage. And it just I'm sure you could me... just pit these sound clips against each other from all I of know, your interviews. I'm kind just, of tempted just have like to point do and it. counterpoint. That would be great. I would love I to like listen the... to that. <laughs> Maybe we will. Because it really does. It's just the critic just never lets us go. And there's it doesn't. Always... And everyone's got a different one. But like ultimately, they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing, which is, yeah. you know, you're and and you're never going to get there. I think we have this false mm -hmm. sense like, oh, if I just build a community or oh, if I just go into the hermitage and, and come if out. If I get with, enough Twitter know, followers, that inner critic is going to shut up. I have bad Yeah, news. if I get <laughs> my Instagram following to 10,000 or whatever the number is, it's like, oh, well, actually 12,000 would be better. Sorry, I was I, I miscalculated. I mean, it's just You're, like growing up, you know, you think like, yeah. oh, when I'm 25, I'm going to have it figured out. And you get to 25 and you go, shit, this is not what I thought it would be. But 35, I'm definitely going to be an adult, hands down, totally prepared. And then I, you know, I, I will speak to you from the future. It does not happen at 35. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm talking with my mom right now. She uh, was a, a script analyst for a producer for a long time. And in the last five years or so has started writing screenplays of her own because she got fed up of reading so many bad ones. And she's 67. Like, yep. And she's still working, you know, she's, she has to get a day job, which is like, that's a whole other complex, you know, financial conversation of like failing 
national security standards for retired folks. But there's also, I feel like that conversation could be so sad. And instead, when I talk to her, she's so lit up about it because she's been putting out these feelers to her community and saying, hey, I I need to work apparently because retirement is not taking care of me because uh, everything is broken. So I'm going to start working again or, you know, I would like to be working more. What work do you have for me? And recognizing that she has the skill set that she's honed over decades of experience. And she's so excited about that and talking to her about it is so great because now we have these conversations. Not that we ever didn't have these conversations, but we're having them from a position of more like, well, this is what I do. What do you do? Do you find that's helpful? Oh, how's it been going when you get up and try and work for three hours every morning? Like, I love that. And she's such an inspiration to me because she's still incredibly transparent about the fact that she does not have it figured out and is just trying things and seeing what happens. And Again, like that that home environment, what you see exemplified in your family, that's continues to be such a source of inspiration for me to to see her grappling with this stuff and trying new things and throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's what I've done my whole career and it's what I intend to keep doing. And the notion of doing anything else is actually kind of boring at this point. So it's it's nice to know that that modularity can extend into later life, it's not like there's going to be a point where someone's going to show up and say like, okay, Bellwood, you've had your fun, but now it's time to settle down and sit at a desk for the rest of forever and do this one thing. I, I highly doubt that's going to happen. But um, but yeah, I, and I don't think you'll have to do that. I think that's wonderful. And, and the internet makes that yeah. possible, right? Like It that, absolutely does. The sustainability of it is the thing I'm really interested in. Because I know my parents have been scrappy and modular their whole lives, but I also recognize that, you know, they're in retirement now and that financial cushion is not supporting them in the way that it might be if they had had traditional jobs um, for, you know, any any part of my life. I realize that they have never had day jobs. Like my mom going to work at the library part-time is the first time she will have had a conventional day job my entire life. And I didn't really recognize how significant that was until we were talking about it the other day. And it was like, wow, you just freelanced like my whole life, like the whole time. (laughs) And how great that was to have her around. But, you know, also that's just a whole area of employment that I didn't have a model for. I didn't understand how it worked. Friends of mine whose parents went off to day jobs. I was like, I don't understand this. It's very confusing. Whereas in my instance, I think with the internet, with Kickstarter, with, you know, putting getting books out there and building audiences like that does have the potential to become a career that could sustain a human being over the course of a lifetime and i i would be really curious to revisit this conversation in 10 years you know and see what's happening then what's changed cuz it that's the thing with technology is it gets so out of hand so quickly not necessarily in a bad way just like 10 years from now i don't even know what it's going to look like no, I don't think we even know what it's going to look like five years from now. But I suspect we'll be checking in with you sooner. Um, <laughs> it's been such a joy. I could talk to you all day, but it has been such a joy. And I know everyone is going to get so much out of this conversation. So I really can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Lucy. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again and see where everything is going. Fantastic. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring the show. Remember, if you use the code SECRET00 with SECRET all caps, you can get 10% off your subscription at musemonthly.com. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. 
The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.